So here it is, the final episode, when at last I reveal how I do it all. Are you ready? Here it is. Autism Spectrum Disorder. See ya! Okay, okay, that's not the whole story. But figuring out how my brain works and, by extension, what I need to do to ensure it can work best was an important step. That looks different for everyone, but one thing we all pretty universally need is a work-life balance. That goes double for youngins like us, who have to balance all this podcast stuff with school, friends, extracurriculars, a part-time job, and, oh yeah, eating and sleeping a normal amount. It's a balancing act that I'm still getting the hang of. I only moved to working exclusively in audio this year, and as of this writing, I've still got another year left of university. Keeping it real and keeping yourself sane may seem like an afterthought, but if you don't put it at the top of your to-do list, you're going to come face-to-face -face with burnout, stagnation, and disappointment. This isn't an extra credit question. It's the most important episode of Mini Marconi's, how to be a fiction podcaster while still being a kid. I'm gonna start simple and blunt. Get a planner. Doesn't matter if it's digital, physical, pretty, or something Patrick Bateman would use. You need a place to keep all your tasks, production steps, deadlines, and most importantly, meetings and events. I really recommend keeping everything, not just podcasting stuff, in one place. It's much harder to forget about something important you have due or overbook yourself when everything is laid out next to each other. If you can't get organized, and yes, to my fellow neurodivergent listeners, it can be done, you're going to lose opportunities and find yourself overwhelmed. Which brings me to my next point, discipline. It's not something that happens overnight, and it's not always what you might think. For me, sitting down to clean up a bunch of audio I know is gonna feel like pulling teeth takes some self-parenting, but tearing myself away from a project because it's one in the morning and I know I need to get a full night's sleep is harder. Accountability tools like cold turkey, which blocks distracting apps and websites, using the Pomodoro method to schedule your day, or even just setting an alarm so you don't lose track of time, help you build discipline and get through the hard stuff so you can have time for fun. Speaking of time for fun, pace yourself. If you're new to the scene or don't have a lot of time on your hands, don't go trying to start several shows, much less a whole network, all at once. A single, simple show, written well and created with care, is going to be a lot more fun to make and sound a lot better than one that is trying to push itself too far too early and ends up falling flat. Here's the thing, you can write around shallow sound design. You can't use even the best sound design to cover up bad writing. I feel so bad when I see producers try to juggle too many projects or run too many shows and end up sacrificing quality for quantity. And by the way, when they complain about feeling overworked but do nothing to fix the problem, it's not just a bad look, it's unprofessional and turns potential collaborators away. You need to understand that as you take on more and more things, including non-podcast related stuff like work and school, you don't have unlimited time. And no, cutting back on sleep, rest, and eating isn't an option. Budgeting yourself to avoid overwork or procrastination doesn't just mean cutting back on mindless scrolling or forcing yourself to go to bed. It's also understanding that your time is valuable and you have the right to say no to projects that aren't worth it, especially when it comes to paying work. When a client offers you a position, they aren't just asking you to come work for them. 
They're asking for a place in your workload that could go to someone else. If what they're offering, whether that be experience, pay, or a good time, isn't a better offer than what you can get elsewhere, do not feel bad about turning them down. It's how the industry works, and it lets you stay sane. And be rest assured, this is a fast-growing industry with new projects and opportunities every day. There's always a way to grow your show or try something in the community that hasn't been done before. Just ask Sean Howard, the co-founder of the fiction podcast-focused network Fable and Folly. And no, I did not bribe him with an interview to get the show on the network. I locked him in my basement for three days with no company but some dancing rats, as a standard negotiating practice in this business. Uh, for legal reasons, that was a joke. So my name is Sean Howard, and I am the co-founder of the Fable and Folly Network. So this episode is sort of about finding work-life balance in making audio drama. And there's a big emphasis on, you know, work with what you do because Fable and Volley is all about advertising and making sure that fiction podcasters can try and see if we can make a living off of what we do. So what do you think makes fiction podcasts in particular so appealing to these advertisers? We started Fable and Folly because no one could sell advertising for fiction shows. Um, to this date, a lot of people still can't. Everyone wants to. They want to go, we're the new home for fiction. And then a year goes by and you find out they couldn't sell advertising. So I sort of set out to solve that problem. And the good news is the problem was not the brands and the problem was not advertisers. The problem was in the industry and how it was structured. When we think of audio fiction, it's still a small piece of the pie in the podcasting landscape, which is interesting because when you look at audiobooks, it's the opposite. I think it's over 85% fiction in audiobooks. Or something. I don't have the number in front of me, but it's the opposite. And when you look at podcasting, one of the top things people do when listening to a podcast and all the surveys everyone puts out every year is work. Audio fiction listeners are generally not listening while they work. They have a level of attention and involvement in the story and in the listening that doesn't exist in talk podcasts. It's not just noise in the background. Otherwise, you don't hear it. Like, you don't hear the story. So, as a result, the level of engagement that fiction shows have with their fans is unparalleled in, in podcasting. And so, I think that we are one of the only shops I know of that has fan art of the ads we do. From fans, you know, Amelia did these ads with a cat in it for a, a brand we we're working with. And now the fans are demanding the cat be part of the show, right? Like, and I'm not saying that it's, it's advertising is amazing and everyone wants it. I, you know, I think, I think a lot of fans recognize that, you know, we're, we're all just trying to survive and we're trying to, to make some money off of what we created. But the, the benefit of uh, when we talk to brands is we have a level of engagement with our community. And I guess I'm going on a long time, but the part that I'm, I most love about the audience for audio fiction is it is the exact opposite of what the industry is touted, right? At Podcast Movement 2022, Edison Research put out their new listener, the podcast listeners study every year, who are podcast listeners. And once again, podcast listeners are 35-year-old or higher white men. That's the slide. And I was so happy to go and look at our stats of fiction listeners, and they are under 35. They are 72% non-male identifying. We still have some diversity issues, but we are just so much more of a vibrant, welcoming, um, awesome community. 
And there's also that back catalog perk as well, because if you're listening to a even semi-serialized show, you want to make sure that you're getting the full story from the very start. Yeah. In fiction, our listeners start on the beginning, right? We start at the start of the story. And it's funny how hard it was for some people to understand that when I'm like, it's the same in true crime. Who listens to the last episode of true crime? Nobody. You don't you want to film and television, too. Like you're not going to start with episode seven of Lost. Yeah, no, 100 percent the same. So, yeah, we have um, it's an amazing community. And what I most love about the audio fiction community is it comes from a place of wanting to be seen and heard, wanting to hear the stories where we we are okay and we are accepted. I love that. I love that. So let's get into a little bit of the nitty gritty because this is supposed to give some real concrete tips that our listeners can use. What are some of the key milestones a show usually has to reach before they're appealing to advertisers or networks like yourself that can help them reach them? Uh, so first of all, I think there's a lot of places where a network can help. Coming together with a group of people can, can help you um, have a community, uh, share learnings and understandings. When you start moving into monetization, uh, we're often we're often at a five thousand a week number. It comes up with ten thousand a week number really being when a lot of advertisers want to um, engage. So yeah, so five thousand a week in downloads is is really a starting point for being able to I think move into monetization outside of crowdfunding. It's sort of an unfortunate truth where we talk about a lot, you know, download numbers do not express the true value of your show. Everybody has their niche. Everybody has their audience. But when you're talking about cold, hard monetization and what advertisers are looking for, it does tend to be reach above everything else. You can have a really well-made show, but if it's not in people's ears, advertisers don't really want it. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, something that we don't talk a lot about in our industry is that we're not really selling advertising, right? We're selling endorsements. We're selling influencer, right? It's influencer marketing. And so if it would be like saying, hey, I want to be an influencer marketer and why is no one paying me money? I have 100 Twitter followers, right? It's the same. Sadly, it's sort of related, right? So um, you don't need to have a million is the good news, right? You know, our level of engagement is so much higher in fiction. Now, if you don't have a network, it's harder at a five or a 10,000 number. But that's one of the advantages of having in a network is you don't have to explain your numbers anymore. You don't have to show screenshots, right? You just, there's a level of trust and understanding. And of course, part of the way that you can be able to hit those milestones is just by really putting a lot of passion into what you're doing and trying to make the best show that you can. At the end of the day, it's going to be a lot easier for fans to get excited about sharing and listening to a really good show than one that was, you know, sloppily made. And? Feed drops, feed drops, feed drops. You love talking about those. <laughs> it's funny because some people, I think if you've never heard of it before, it can feel alien. So I just like to get it out there. Any chance I get, sorry, uh, Newt. But when we think about you know how hard it is to get listeners, even with a great show, a beautiful show that's so well-crafted, it's just hard now to get the word out. And part of that is because we're constantly doing things where we're, we're going up against everyone's attention in all modes right and we all are overwhelmed with information being thrown at us and then we're like well then we're going up and going up against podcasting well fiction is less than what five percent of podcasting the numbers are different every time i see them but so like when you think about where your core audience is 
they're probably already listening to fiction shows and they're probably running out of shows and looking for more. So a feed drop is a way for you to appear in someone else's feed with an endorsement where there's a whole first episode that plays. So it's when two shows say, I'm going to promote your show on my feed and you can promote mine in your feed. And it is the single most effective way to get listeners. I know that and also crossovers is something that oh, you tout yeah, okay. a lot. Yeah, crossovers beat it, but I was keeping it simple, Newt. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, sure. But you but just, cross- done some, you just did an awesome crossover. Thank you. I, I remember that I saw the thread on Twitter that you did about how important crossovers can be to building your audience. I think it was about the Amelia Project and Forgive Me. And that was what pushed me to reach out to the folks at Amelia and be like, hey, I have a character who can't die. You have an agency that fakes people's deaths. There is profit to be had. Yes, 100% dead on. And you are right. Collaborations are the only thing I know of that can beat a fee drop. A fee drop can transfer in fiction, doesn't work as well out of fiction, up to 10% of an audience between shows. And they don't leave. It's just you you gain. So if you're doing a fee drop with a show that has 100,000 listeners, you just got 10,000 listeners. And the only thing I've seen to beat that is a collaborative, which we've seen as high as 16% or 18 in one case. So Collaborative takes a lot more effort. You're building a show together, right? And dropping it on both feeds or one feed or whatever. But it gets you so much investment. Because that's what you talk about when it comes to fiction. The number one thing that sets fiction apart is audience investment. Yes. Yeah. And now you have an audience that's fully invested in this new character in these two worlds, like in your world. So what is a growing trend that gets you really excited about where fiction podcasting is going next? It's not related directly to um, fiction podcasting as a medium per se, really, but it I guess it is. Producers and opportunity. Literally as, as short as a year ago, if you and I were having this conversation, I would have lamented that nobody that came from the independent fiction space could get a job in any of the emerging fiction um, opportunities that are happening in podcasting. Q Code was only hiring TV and radio people. Gimlet, only hiring TV and radio people. Everyone just wanted people that were TV and radio trained. And this past year has been so soul uplifting. So many of the people I know, both in our network and out in the community, are getting they're being recognized. They're getting jobs. They're working in our industry professionally. Like, and I can't believe I have to sound so crazed about this, but it's it's so amazing and such a wonderful turn. And I think it's only a sign of what to come because those people that got in the door, they are destroying internally. People are like, how are you finding such good people? And what? They're, they don't have to be like, you know, like everyone's like, there, there are these, there's this whole community of people that have hone their craft and now know other people in this space and so anyways that's what i think i'm most excited about is seeing these people getting jobs working in you know companies that are that are doing tv deals and film deals and amazon deals and they're gonna hold the door open too they're, they're ushering people in they're not even holding they're like they're like i know a producer that was working on a thing that everything sounded like a tv show it didn't it wasn't working and then they found out how much was being paid to this union TV guy from some big TV. And they just like, they just started bringing in audio pros from audio, just like sitting and and paying them the same rate because they're an awesome person, producer. And of course it was heaven, right? And what got produced blew the company away, right? And I think that's gonna happen more and more. 
It's great. because It's a very much a rising tide lifts all ships kind of situation. Because the point is, if you bring in people who, number one, know what they're doing, but number two, are really, really passionate about this particular medium, you will get a great product. So what is one piece of advice that you would want to give to someone on the younger end who wants to get started in audio drama? It's changing, right? Like there are now people who are able to get a degree doing what didn't exist. And I think that is so amazing to see. The advice I would give is come out eyes open. Don't expect the industry to immediately embrace this new position, sadly. But do it. Go get this training because this is an exploding industry. We are in 30% year-over-year growth. And so people are coming out now, I think, with degrees for the first time in actually this space that aren't journalism. They're fiction-related. But be aware that uh, the industry hasn't fully turned the corner yet. So don't lose hope, right? Come out and then start to network, start to connect to the indie community, create a show, launch a show, get in the community because there are now people that are in and that will pull you up. Um, and um, it's an amazing opportunity. But just, I just, I, my fear is that someone's going to spend all this time and horrible debt of going to school in today's modern age and then be like, I'm not getting a job. I've got to go give it up and do something I don't want. And I'm, I just want them to know there is still a path and it's coming. And this industry, they're just at the, they're at the crux. Like, it's almost like everyone's now the first wave of people coming out trained in this industry. And the industry doesn't even know that that's a thing we can hire for yet. If you're interested in a higher education, most colleges don't exactly have a comprehensive podcasting major that covers all the parts of making and running a show. Like me, you'll probably have to DIY things a little bit. I found that majors focusing on audio production, music and management business, and writing and directing tend to be a good bet depending on what you're passionate about. Having a solid knowledge base of intellectual property and entertainment law isn't just useful, it's practically required these days. College can be a space to learn concrete skills, network with your peers, and set the stage for part-time or full-time employment. When it comes to getting hired to work on a show or for a company, that can feel really exciting. But with that usually comes interviews or some appraisal of your professional presence. And for younger creators, there's a roadblock we sometimes run up against. Being underestimated, or worse, taken advantage of. Even though my age is sort of part of my brand at this point, I always feel really nervous bringing it up to someone who hasn't met Newt the Professional first. There have absolutely been times where I'm speaking to someone, mention being a student or how old I am, and instantly feel the way they see and talk to me change. It's always frustrating, because you can't exactly say, look, I know you think I'm just some inexperienced, stupid kid, but actually, we're going to go through my resume with a fine-tooth comb because I think I know more about American Girl Dolls than you do, genius. Or, you know, podcasting. The best advice I can give to combat this is tough but satisfying. Prove them wrong. Putting in the work and showing the doubters you know what you're doing gets results. And most crucial of all, it shows you the people you really want to work with. A good leader, and a good producer, by the way, knows when to check their ego at the door and admit when they were wrong, so they can get the best possible folks on their team. If you can work with someone like that, do the smart thing and say yes. Don't say yes to everything, though. There are people who will assume they can get away with underpaying you because you're young and need to, quote-unquote, pay your dues. 
Experience, regardless of pay, is important up to a point. But after that point, you need to gut check with close friends and folks who know what your time and talents are worth. Every time I'm offered a job with rates, I run it by a couple close industry friends. Whisper networks are so, so important because they prevent people from getting taken advantage of, which leads to, say it with me, burnout. On the flip side, that can also come from being so focused on the, let's be real here, very adult mindset you have to be in to do this job, that you forget the most important thing to do at this time in your life. Be a kid. Don't let this professional world, whether it's currently full of successes or keeping your nose to the grindstone, overwhelm the stage and life that you're at. Go to the school dance or football game. Attend those college freshman mixers. Hang out with your friends, dye your hair a weird color, dress up in cosplay, and take pictures you'll be super embarrassed of later. Hold on to those chances to figure out who you are and what you believe in. They're what you're supposed to be doing anyway. You've just got some extra stuff on your plate. If you can, don't count your parents out. Run big decisions by them, come to them for advice, and see what experiences they can share. Speaking of which, meet my dad, Lou Shuttlecotty. He enjoys golf, local Cincinnati history, and yelling at cars who don't use their turn signals even though they can't hear him. My name is Lou Shuttlecotty, and I am Newt's dad. <laughs> so, what other podcasts do you listen to besides, obviously, mine? <laughs> I uh, listen to yours. Um, I listen to uh, Mark Marin, uh, WTF. That's the nice way to pronounce it. A couple of golf podcasts, which I like a lot. And uh, one from the NPR guy. You mean Hidden Brain? Yeah, that's it. Hidden Brain. So how did you feel when I first told you that I was making Inkworm this podcast that was going out to all of these people? And then what was it like seeing it sort of grow as I grew up from just this hobby that your kid did to podcasting being my real-time job? It's an area that is, it's not an obvious form. So it's something you have to kind of go looking for. It's been around for a long time, but it just hasn't been a very good medium for a long time. The, the world of uh, Wi-Fi and all the rest of it has kind of changed that and made this a lot more uh, accessible. But it's definitely something you have to actively go find and go see. So I always knew you were a terrific writer. wasn't surprised that you were writing something along these lines. You just kind of cross your fingers and never really know if somebody's ever going to show up at, at your lemonade stand. And as it turned out, um, a lot of people showed up at your lemonade stand and, uh, and they liked your lemonade. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Not surprising, uh, <laughs> but pretty cool. How do you explain what your kid does for their job? Um, you know, most of the people in my era understand radio drama very, very well. You know, I hang around with some people that are older that actually grew up with radio dramas, um, much the same way, you know, I grew up with television and all. So when they understand it that way, um, that, that clicks immediately and they get it. The technology as far as the podcasting stuff is a little easier for some people than it is for others, but they understand the genre. They just maybe don't... 100% always understand the delivery system. Because, you know, at least before we had all of these streaming services and podcasts were sort of like a more well-known thing, it's like mom didn't even know that she had the podcasting app on her phone until I showed her how to find it. Right. And, you know, from a content standpoint, it wasn't like she was hearing people at Kroger talking about this new podcast and you've got to go home and watch and listen to it. 
um, kind of the same way you do sometimes with the television show or or something along those lines. So it hasn't quite broken through at that level yet where it's really water cooler talk. Um, so for some people who are getting all the enjoyment that they want out of TV shows or whatever inane thing is being written on Facebook that particular day, so they may not be looking for another entertainment medium. And so they don't put a lot of effort into it. Podcasting's challenge is just that it's it's up against competition and and ease of use is a big darn deal. And, you know, again, until it until you show somebody how to go do it and what's all out there, then they don't really pay much attention to it. So it's just a it's a slow rollout for where do you go get something that you can't get someplace else. You know, that's why for me, some of the I, I don't listen to sports talk radio or any of those kinds of things. But I really like golf, and there's some people that do some very interesting golf podcasts, and so those guys are are people that are interesting, and those people that are that are fun to to listen to. So I went and kind of found them, and now I you know I, I listen to it. Now I will say that my podcasting, there are some people that you know listen to stuff every week, and that's great. For me, I sort of store up my podcasts, and then when I do road trips or various things, I'll you know binge on two, three, four, five episodes of of whatever it is that I follow. So. You know, I fit it in. So what was the biggest mistake that you made when you went from being a student who was in college and maybe working a part-time job to transitioning to what would become your full-time career? Very different era when I was getting out of college and getting into jobs because the job market was pretty brutal at that point. People in my era were used to packing it up and moving to a city to go jump into a job and then try to climb up inside that job as much as possible. The one thing that I probably wish I'd have done a little bit sooner when I was getting into the job world was to try to find um, a good mentor and um, and also a good critic because those are the people that can keep an eye on you and point you in the right direction when you're kind of stupid and you don't really know much. And you start figuring that out later and then you go do it. But boy, you could have probably compressed a whole lot of learning curve by doing that earlier in my career than, than at the point that I did. What can parents do to support their kids going into the entertainment industry, which, as you know from going to college for theater for a little bit, holds a lot of rejections, a lot of thankless paying your dues, and taking a lot of risks? It's a little bit like when you, know, you were doing your music stuff um, a handful of years back, knowing that you know, the product was there, the talent is there, that really it's a matter of trying to play the game in terms of exposure. I mean, you've got to have the product when they get there. There's no question about it. But you have to really actively go after it. That is the place where a lot of people, where a lot of things just die on their vine because they don't. They work on their product, but they don't They don't work on the marketing of it. They don't work on pushing it out, following it up, and, and keeping something going. That's really, really hard. And there are playbooks for this, but... The playbooks have all been thrown out in the last five years, 10 years in the music business and this thing that you're in right now with podcasting. And from kind of what I see, you're kind of helping to write a playbook on how do you market this stuff? How do you get word out so that you cut through and actually compel somebody to go over and look at their podcast app and then go find your podcast and start listening to it? That's a lot of pushing to make it happen, but... It sounds like, you know, you're bringing people to the table. Don't be bashful and don't be assumptive. Don't just think, oh, everybody, since everybody that I know knows my stuff and knows what I'm doing, 
that that translates into that everybody knows it. In fact, there are still people in the television business, the movie business, all the rest of it that are that are just sure that everybody knows who they are, and people don't know who they are. So you have to wake up every day thinking, you know, how do I spread the word a little bit more? How do I reinforce what I've got? Um, how do I show that I'm hungry? And how do I sh- and how do I make sure I've got a great product when they get there? Yeah. But you're very proud of all the youngins listening to this, right? Oh yeah. I mean, and I'm and I'm. You you asked me about what I would do differently when I was starting into where I am now. Um, I would have I would have jumped in to be an even more voracious student of what selling and what marketing is all about at, at right from the get go. Um, in, in fact, in some ways, cheating because there are brilliant people that have written great great things and. Finding out what they wrote and learning what they've got and and compressing their twenty five years worth of experience into a into a four hour read of a book is what the smart people and the successful people did. Um, so compliments to the people that are saying, you know, what are your ideas? To, you know, give me something to to work with. And listen, when you and I went to see uh, Night Vale for the first time, and I looked around this theater that was completely packed, I looked around and I thought, okay. I don't have any idea what the show is. I don't know where these people all know about it, but they all clearly know about it. So there's a whole thing going on here that you don't know about. And so that that made me curious. Like, what is this thing? There's a lot of lessons that have already been learned in television, in radio, in, in print, all the rest of it. They're gonna, Those same things are going to apply to what you're doing. And the people that become students of that stuff, too, are going to be the people that leapfrog the others. There's nothing wrong with learning what somebody else has already done and applying all of that stuff. And I, and I think that you're doing that. I think you're, 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 you're a researcher type of person who's looking into this thing and, and doing it, which is probably one of the reasons why you're, you're, you know, you're having this strong success that you are right now, you know? Thank you. Yeah, you're doing great. You're yeah. doing great. Out of everything we've talked about, probably the hardest thing for me is being kind to my younger creative self. Let me put this in perspective. A thing I made in high school with all the life experience, quality of skills, ideas and beliefs, and flat out maturity is now up on the internet forever. And also an essential part of my resume and personal brand. Every time someone I admire tells me they've listened to Inkworm, I'll admit it, I cringe a little. I'm not ashamed of the show as a whole. I just know that my skills in just about everything have progressed so much since then. That's a good thing, though. I said at the beginning of this that to jump in and start creating, especially at a young age, you have to accept that making bad art is going to be a part of the process. You can't improve until you mess up in the first place. I'm glad the art I made when I was a kid is a little embarrassing. It means I've learned and grown and can be more confident that the skills I bring to the table now are really good. And hey, at least the most publicly embarrassing thing I did as a teenager was make an earnest sci-fi rom-com based on Ugly Betty and BBC Merlin. It could be worse. I could have read Homestuck. Finally, here's my actionable advice for today. Part of what I'm about to say, I want you to write on a sticky note and put it above your desk, your bed, wherever you get creative. As someone so young, I get asked a lot what advice I would give to people who want to get started in fiction podcasting. What I usually say is just start and worry about sucking or messing up later. But that's already been said and done quite a bit here. So instead, I'll go with this and get out your pencils. There will come a point where you are in a room you don't think you deserve to be in. Good. It means you're doing something right. 
getting out of your comfort zone experience-wise is the only way for that zone to grow. I've applied for jobs I didn't think I had a chance at and landed them. I've gone out on a limb and said I knew how to do something I maybe didn't at the time, but was able to Google and research my way into being pretty darn good at. I've taken opportunities to challenge myself and be the least experienced person in the room because it damn well means I'm going to be the most prepared. You cannot make it into the big leagues, whatever those leagues may be, without understanding that moving up the ladder is going to feel scary. Yes, it'll still be exciting and empowering and something to go get ice cream about. But the more and bigger opportunities you have, the more room there is for self-doubt to tell you that you can't do this. That's where experience comes in. Knowing that you have put in the time, effort, and practice to bring your A-game. And despite being the greenest person in the room, or the youngest, or the least connected, that game is going to turn heads. The incredible thing about audio fiction is that it allowed a 15-year-old with nothing but a story they wanted to tell and the gumption to believe it was a good one to look at the creators they had grown up admiring and think, why can't I do that? And then go do it. I tell this story so often because I want you to understand. I'm not a special case. That kid can be you. It should be you. A community and industry cannot grow without a steady influx of fresh faces and new ideas. And that's where you come in. Go make your thing. Dreaming big doesn't have to wait until you meet the height requirement. Holy sh! that was cheesy. If you like what you heard, sound off. Drop me a line at minimarconis.com or at newtshot, that's N-E-W-T-S-C-H-O-T-T, on Twitter. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Podchaser, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.